What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Relying on everything from bombastic claims of greatness to masking bad business as anti-establishment coolness, one brand has survived for almost 200 years with a product that can best be described as meh. What do you have? Babs Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Babs Blue Ribbon. When a waitress glides up to your place with a pretty smile upon her face, here's the way to really romance her. Give her that Babs Blue Ribbon answer. What do you have? Babs Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Babs Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Babs Blue Ribbon. Babs Blue Ribbon, dear. The question is, how long can a brand thrive on hype alone? This is Bizography, the show where we dive into the strange but true stories of iconic companies. Whether they're a current shining star, in the midst of a massive dumpster fire, or settling into the dust heap of history, they all have a past worth knowing. I'm Dana Barrett. I'm a former tech executive, an entrepreneur, and a TV and radio host. And over the course of my career, I've interviewed thousands of business leaders and reported on the bright beginnings and massive flameouts of the brands we know and love. Some of their stories are inspiring, some get my blood boiling, and some show just how weird American consumers truly are. And speaking of weird, with me today, as always, is my producer and millennial friend, New Guy Nick. I'm going to take that as an endearing weird, but thank you. It is an endearing weird. (laughs) I like weird. I'm a self-described weirdo. It's okay. Look, today, I want to treat our episode like one of those movies that, like, starts almost at the end of the story, then does the flashback thing, and then works its way back up to the present. Are you good with that? Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I like those storylines. Those are always fun. That's like my favorite kind of movie, actually. Yeah. You get, like, the, the chapter before the end. Yeah. Yeah. And then you still have the big conclusion. Exactly. We might need some symbols at the end of the episode just to make sure we <laughs> end it with a bang, as it were. 
Okay, to do that for PBR, we need to start with the mid-2000s when hipsters made Pabst Blue Ribbon their beer of choice. Oh, the hipsters. All right, Nick. I think you you might be a hipster. Are you a hipster? No. Okay, let's let's see if we can figure this out Uh, because you have a beard. I do. That's a little hipstery. I, I think it's probably, and, and because you know me, it's it's less because of the fact that I'm going for the hipster look and be, but for more, more because I don't want to look like I'm 12. But you're right. Yeah, I think that might be part of the hipster thing. That's you want to look older than you are. Yeah. Right, maybe. I, I, in fairness, though, I think one of the at least more recent hipster fashion trends is the cuffed blue jeans, and I've never seen you do a cuffed blue jean. Yeah, I'm not into that so much. No. So I also don't have a crazy collection of hats. Seems to also be another kind of hipster icon. Plaid. Plaid plaid shirts also kind of hipstery. Yeah, I'll admit I've been getting a little into those more. Maybe I'm turning into one. In any case, it's funny because hipsters are like, you know, a lot – they don't – it's like you don't really admit you're a hipster if you're a hipster because a lot of people use it like a dirty word, don't they? Yeah. Like, oh, hipsters. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, in any case, whether they claim it or not, in the early 2000s, Pabst Blue Ribbon was an outdated, uncool, old brand that was basically going the way of Oldsmobile, a brand that died in 2004, even though they tried using some celebrities to regain popularity. This way, Mr. Star. Life with me, Dad's a real scream. He's a star vehicle, like my own new Cutlass Supreme. It's a fab photo that really screams. Hello, Daddy. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, that was uh, – so maybe I guess if Oldsmobile was kind of, you know, the old uncool brand that tried to be hip in a hipster way, maybe I am a hipster. My first car was an Oldsmobile. Okay. Yeah, I think we're getting so somewhere now. So. Yeah, maybe so. All right. Well, hipster or not, and Oldsmobile or not <laughs> – PBR in the early 2000s was doing a whole lot of nothing nationwide. In 2001, they were in a 20-year sales decline, only selling 1 million barrels of beer in a year. Just to give you an idea of volume, over 200 million barrels, 200 million barrels were sold by U.S. beer makers in 2017. And remember, in 2001, they were making 1 million barrels. Very very insignificant. Yeah, like a teeny tiny percentage of the, I can't do math or I would do it, but a teeny (laughs) tiny percentage of the production. They were doing nothing in sales except, weirdly enough, in Portland, Oregon. Volume in 2001 and 2002 in Portland, Oregon was supposedly doubling every month there. Very interesting. And Portland is kind of the hipster capital Isn't it? The Pacific Northwest in general. Now you're seeing what was Uh... happening. Portland was flourishing at the time. In the 1990s, the tech industry began to emerge in Portland. They had the establishment of some big companies like Intel, which brought more than $10 billion in investments to that city in 1995 alone. Then after the year 2000, Portland experienced a ton of growth. They had a population rise of over 90,000 between 2000 and 2014. The city's increased presence within the cultural lexicon has established it as a mecca for young people. And in fact, it was second only, believe it or not, to Louisville. I didn't even know Louisville was that cool. It's very interesting, too. But, that but who knew? Portland and Louisville. Huh. Yeah, very, very different places in the country, right. and yet. 
So between 2001 and 2012, as Portland is growing, their GDP is growing up, the young people are moving in, it's also filling up with hipster subcultures like bike messengers and fans of rockabilly and indie rock. And they were doing things like having Vespa scooter rallies. That screams hipster and trying too hard. Big time. And try scooter. And trying too hard. <laughs> a Vespa scooter rally. Though right. I would really like to see how tall are you? Six uh, two. Okay. I would like to see your six <laughs> two bearded giant teddy bear self on a Vespa. I'm just saying. I would I would like to too. I'd like to find a Vespa that can actually move me at more than three or four miles an hour. I'd be impressed. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> I think we need to make that happen. Uh in any case, PBR started noticing this trend. They're seeing that their sales are kind of sucktastic all around the country and kind of great in Portland, Oregon. So they send some of their marketers out to Portland to figure out what's going on. And they found that these hipsters in Portland liked PBR because it was retro, because it was cheap, and because it was sort of anti-commercial at the time. It's because it wasn't good and it wasn't cool. It was just, like, not flashy. In other words, these people didn't want to be marketed to. They wanted to find something on their own. And they, for all intents and purposes, considered themselves anti-corporate. Do you think of yourself as anti-corporate? Uh, slightly. Okay. So, as, we, as we get further in this episode, I think I'm more and more turning into accepting the fact that maybe I am a hipster. Okay. Okay. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little surprised by your, as much of it, I was sort of teasing because I didn't think you were really a hipster, but okay. Um, what's nuts about this whole anti-corporate thing is that by 2001, PBR was kind of as corporate as it gets. They weren't even a real brewery anymore. They didn't even actually have a PBR brewery anywhere. Their sales had dropped, as we said, way down. They were, at this point, 90% below their peak, which was back in 1975. And they closed the last actual brewer they had, which was in Fogelsville, Pennsylvania. They started outsourcing their production. So they were really just a brand name. They were outsourcing their production to Miller. Now, it wasn't Miller Coors at that point. It was just Miller. And so they were basically a virtual brewer, as one executive put it. So they were, I don't know, as fake as the hipsters themselves in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. They had this front of the, the old school and in reality, nope, we're, the, we're part of the machine. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, wouldn't it have made more sense? I mean, you can now speak for all hipsters, I think we've decided. <laughs> or maybe not, but you will for the sake of this episode. So wouldn't it have made more sense for them to align with like a local brewery in Portland? You would you would think they would. But I think the problem is, is that even some of the local breweries, they, you know, it's a small business. They're trying to advertise. They're trying to get out there and and grow. And, you know, the hipster movement is is nationwide, even back then. So if you've got online with a local brewery in, in Oregon, that might not be available to your hipster buddies on the East Coast. I know, but I feel like, you know, one of – and I'm, I'm, I'm making this up because I'm not a hipster, but I feel like the whole idea was to, like, rip the, you know, the logos off your stuff, right? Like, you don't want to be walking around in a Michael Kors something. You rip the Michael Kors logo off because you're anti-corporate, right? And so then here you pick this, like, corporate virtual beer – but I think we've learned, too, that just in general, American consumers don't pay a whole lot of attention to the brands that they buy and consume. And PBR just looked old school, right. forgotten about, and they jumped on board. Yeah. I mean, the cheap part definitely was a big part of it. But I was trying to figure out what 
exactly these hipsters were liking. And so in an article dating back from 2011, the Chicago Tribune said that Pabst Blue Ribbon, or PBR, this is a quote, has a cult following of young hip urbanites in Chicago and elsewhere who say they enjoy the beer because it's unsexy, unpretentious, and blue-collar Midwest. Here's another one. I like PBR, this is a quote, because it doesn't taste like beer. This is from a 26-year-old named Brenna who has a blog called Stuff Hipsters Hate and a book by that same name. She says, quote, it tastes like water, dirty water. And it is very interesting that that's an appealing aspect. Yeah, I'm going to vote no (laughs) on dirty water. Um. PBR even started appearing in some fancy restaurants. Uh, Momofuku superstar chef David Chang put PBR in his Toronto noodle bar, saying, quote, that was like the cheapest beer we could put on. I really like shitty beer. I don't really love Pabst, but I just want cheap beer, and it's the cheapest beer we have. PBR is fine, I'm quoting here, but it has this awful hipster connotation, and beer is fucking expensive. He's not wrong. (laughs) Beer is expensive. (laughs) So he's already, though, which is kind of hilarious, toying with this problem that he wants cheap beer. He doesn't like Pabst, but it's cheap. But it has this, quote, awful hipster connotation. And yet everybody who comes to my restaurant's probably an awful hipster. So fine. Here's your PBR. Right. You got to give the people what they want, even when it's gross. So when the marketers from Pabst go out there and start looking around, they got smart. And they decided to employ, like, "Mm, I'm going to go with anti-marketing. They saw this hipster boost in Portland, and they decided they could turn this into a trend. They knew, somehow they understood, I mean, they were close enough, I think, in age to the hipsters themselves, the guys that they sent out there. And so they knew that they couldn't advertise in a traditional way, like, hey, hipsters, here's your beer of choice. Like, that wasn't going to work. So they embraced sort of these niche groups And they went to grassroots events in cities that they deemed as Portland-like. So as PBR sort of grew on its own in Portland, they, you know, they shored that up by maybe throwing some money at a bike messenger event or a Vespa rally or a rockabilly concert, right? But then they started doing the same things in San Francisco and Denver and Seattle, and they did it, like, subtly. They'd give a little bit of money, they'd have PBR there, but they wouldn't put billboards up. Or, uh, you know, flashing neon signs or, you know, have the, what was it like, was it Monster that used to drive around with the trucks that had the, looked like a can? That was Red Bull, oh, right? Oh, Red has Bull, the, there has you the go. the big can on the back, right, right. I knew it was one of those <laughs> other hipster drinks. But yeah, so they did this like in Portland and San Francisco and Denver and Seattle, and they started working their way into these small subcultures in the hipper, cooler cities around the country. Did you know that bike messengers had rodeos? Uh, a, a bike messenger rodeo? Yeah, I'm not sure what That's that would be. a little odd. Maybe you not knowing that means you're not fully a hipster. Right. I'm only partially in. You can still be saved. <laughs> There's hope for you yet. So getting back to sort of the money behind all of this, after that sort of dismal 2001 with their sales of under 1 million barrels at PBR, things start to get better. And the hipster embrace of PBR starts to really make a difference nationwide. In 2002, sales go up 5.3%. In 2003, sales go up 15%. And from 2003 to 2008, they keep going at that pace. Then in 2009, sales go up again, this time 
8.5%, which is unheard of. In 2010, still really good, 18% increase. 2011, still pretty good, back to that 14, 15% uh, increase. And in 2012, PBR is selling 92 million gallons. Remember, in 2001, 1 million. Yeah. But can it last? Before we get to that, let's go back to the beginning. Maybe we'll find some of our answers right there. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is a brand that had some interesting marketing techniques and a company mission that may have been more about ego and money than making a quality product. And when I'm talking about their interesting marketing techniques, I don't mean in the hipster era. I mean way back in the beginning. This new guy, Nick, is the flashback portion of the movie. 
Ready for it? Right. So this is the uh, this is the moment where they kind of look off in the distance. That's right. And it fades out. Yes. It fades back in. Right. The gotcha. hipsters fade out. Right. And the beards from the 1844s fade in. Little bowler hats. From one beard to another. That's That's where we're going there. If it were a soap opera. In 1844, it all began when a, a German immigrant by the name of Jacob Best Sr. created the brewery Best & Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He did this with his four sons, Jacob Jr., Charles, Philip, and Lorenz. I like Lorenz. That's very fancy. It's a very, very peculiar name, the best yeah. one. Uh, production in those days uh, consisted of about 300 barrels a year, so vastly different from uh, where we are now. Then in 1853, Jacob Best retired, and his son Philip ultimately became the sole proprietor. Now, Philip Best changes the company's name in 1859 to Philip Best Brewing Company. Uh, you can't see me, but my eyebrow just went up. Like, it was already called Best. He had to put his name in there, though. It's quite the ego move there, sir. Right. Quite the ego this move. This is sort of like... <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't good enough because maybe his brothers could still take credit for it if he didn't put his name on it. So you can see what I mean when I say maybe this was about ego. And the story just continues in that vein. So Philip gets married. He has a kid, and her name is Maria. Maria marries a man named, wait for it, Frederick Pabst. Pabst is a steamboat captain and an acquaintance of her dad's. And he was about 25 when they got married. He has a backstory himself that is, you know, not story of riches. He struggled. His father died when he was young, and he became this steamboat captain. Ultimately, he marries Maria, and in 1863, about a year and a half after the wedding, while he's trying to bring his boat into Milwaukee Harbor, he runs the ship aground. Now, in these days, we'd have an investigation, and probably he'd be charged with DUI, maybe a few too many best beers, just saying. But at the time, it just caused him to shift careers. And a short while later, Frederick Pabst buys half of his father-in-law's brewing company. Then just two years after that, in 1865, he brings in his brother-in-law and the two of them buy out Philip Best. From 1874 to 1893, under Pabst's leadership, the company became the largest national brewery. That happened in 1874. And, of course, once again, we have an ego-based name change. He changed the name of the company to the Pabst Brewing Company in 1889. So, like, barely 40 years in some odd of existence, and this is now the third name for this company. Right, and I'm just going to say this. Best was a pretty good name. Right. It's it, pretty straightforward. Well, it, it, your beer is the best beer. That's a marketing campaign in and of itself. But instead, they go with the Pabst Brewing Company. In 1892, Pabst becomes the largest brewery in the world, the first ever to produce over a million barrels of beer in a single year. From 1879 to 1893, the company opened 40 offices around the country. Twelve were in Wisconsin alone. There weren't craft beers then, but... There was a crafty brewery owner and a marketing genius before there were CMOs and marketing best practices. I think this is sort of the fascinating backstory of Pabst, right? Because this was a time when you made a product and you sold it. And it was plain and simple. And yeah, there might have been some competitors here or there. But things were based mostly on geography. You bought what was closest to you and easiest to get. 
And maybe you compared prices. And sure, maybe you liked one label over another. But literally, the word marketing wasn't even used then. I don't think the word marketing actually came into fashion. I did a little research on this until like the 1950s. There was advertising, but there wasn't marketing. And that makes sense. You know, the, the railroads and everything in the 50s, by then we started to become a pretty interconnected world. So you could get stuff from across the country. There you go. But all the way back in 1893, Frederick Pabst was kind of a crafty, sneaky marketer. So Pabst Best Select, that was the name of the beer at the time, not Pabst Blue Ribbon. Pabst Best Select allegedly won the top beer award at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, also known, or better known, shall we say, as the Chicago World's Fair. Or did they win? That is the big question. I have to go off on a little bit of a bunny trail here, new guy Nick. You know how I love a good bunny trail. The Chicago World's Fair was a major moment for products and design and invention in the United States. And it's also the subject of one of my favorite books of all time, which is called The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. If you've never read it, you really need to. Um, It talks about the whole putting together uh, of the Chicago World's Fair. And it also talks about a serial murder that was happening around the same time. It's fascinating. But in any case, there were products introduced that we've all heard of to this day at the Chicago World's Fair. Juicy fruit gum came from there. Cracker Jack, shredded wheat. The first ever Ferris wheel came from the Chicago World's Fair. That's crazy. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the Ferris wheel was sort of an attempt to compete with the Eiffel Tower, which was also introduced at an earlier World's Fair. Yeah. Uh, This was the first time the fairgrounds had ever been electrified with alternating current. Uh, Nikola Tesla was there shooting lightning from his hands. (laughs) Thomas Edison was there presenting the kinetoscopes moving pictures, the earliest movies. So it was quite the quite the event in Chicago. And did you know that World's Fairs still go on and basically no one cares anymore? Interesting. I yeah. mean, they, the new invention stuff that it's yeah, all out there. because really? of the internet. The internet killed yeah. the World's Fair. That's a good point. You yeah, can catch it anywhere. The U.S. doesn't really participate anymore. Mm. We kind of opted out. It's kind of sad because those seem like that have been really cool. Oh, absolutely. I was go get all the fancy. It's kind of like the CES of the time back there then. There you go. <laughs> You're right. But let's bring it back. So back to PBR, uh, according to some sources at the Chicago World's Fair, Pabst never actually won a blue ribbon. During some festivals like the World's Fair, Pabst was placing blue ribbons around their best beer so it would stand out among the other beers. That's one version of the story. Cheater, cheater. Come on. Cheater, cheater. (laughs) This would have a modern-day pants-on-fire rating. Uh, Another version of the story is that the beer judges at the World's Fair came up with sort of their own scoring system and let the brewers sort of figure out who won based on who got the highest score. And it looked like at the time that Anheuser-Busch and Pabst were sort of neck and neck. And at the end, maybe, maybe Pabst ended up ahead of Bush beer at the time by a tiny little bit. But Frederick Pabst, being that crafty genius marketer that he was, quickly, before anyone else had a chance, announced himself as the grand prize winner. Even though his medal and certificate was exactly the same as everyone else's. They were all special snowflakes, even back then. (laughs) Participation trophies 120 years ago. (laughs) Basically, that's exactly what it was. 
Either way, right or not, fair or not, the entire brewery, the Pabst Brewery in Milwaukee, was draped with a giant blue ribbon and the workers were given a day off. The attention that they got from that and the sales that followed inspired them to change the name and also probably to get his father-in-law's name out of there from Best Select to Pabst Blue Ribbon. That is crazy that something like that, and that's true, the kind of fanfare, you have a whole massive brewery taking the day off. Why are you off? Well, because we won an award. There you go. Free word of mouth marketing and advertising right there. Absolutely. Hold on. I need to drink some dirty water. That wasn't the only bit of marketing genius, as if that wasn't enough. Because the blue ribbon, a Pabst blue ribbon is what everyone thinks of it as now, PBR. That's what that is. But that was not the only kind of ahead-of-its-time marketing genius that Frederick Pabst brought to the table. There was, I love this name, the Pabst Whitefish Bay Resort that opened in 1889. It was like kind of the Disney of its day. It had rentable rowboats. They had outdoor movies, of course. Obviously, they served a ton of beer, PBR. And they even had their own Ferris wheel eventually. Huh. The place had a 25-year run. It closed in 1914. But that's because Pabst, by that point, Frederick Pabst, had been gone for 10 years. And he was the energy behind it. So it was like the original Bush Gardens, in a way. The first alcohol-themed <laughs> theme park. That's crazy. I think we need more of those now. Get drunk (laughs) and ride the rides. Right. I'm down. Pabst might also sound like another businessman we talk about a lot these days because there was a 14-story Pabst building in downtown Milwaukee. There was a Pabst theater. That one's still in operation today. And this was all part and parcel for him becoming a household name. He understood that marketing idea that, again, came along much later of those seven touches. You got to have your name in front of people. They got to see it seven times to even know who you are. And he knew it. And he worked it. And that's incredible because the best part about this is that up to this point, how much work has really gone into that beer? Oh, no, it's dirty water beer. (laughs) The product itself, he didn't care. He was not passionate about beer. He was passionate about making money and having his name in lights, clearly. Listen, he was also a survivor, and this might have come from his childhood, and he passed that on to his own kids because Fred Pabst, the son of Frederick, took the business over from his dad. And in 1920 through 1933, when times were tough, a.k.a. Prohibition, PBR survived by switching from making beer to making cheese. That is an odd transition. Well, they had to do something non-alcoholic. That's what they did. So they aged the cheese in the brewery's ice cellars. And from the looks of it, the cheese was kind of a Velveeta sort of thing. It was called, wait for this, Pabstet. Pabstet. Which is impossible to say. (laughs) So clearly bad branding. He was not, listen, he was a marketing genius. He was not a branding genius. The Blue Ribbon was genius. Pabstet, not so much. Ultimately, Pabstep, believe it or not, was sold to Kraft in 1933, uh, probably so that it could not compete with Velveeta anymore. I assume Velveeta was already in full force at the time, Um, but maybe there's an episode of bizography there. Who knows? We could have some nachos in here. Anyway, after Prohibition in 1934, it's back to beer, and things start to go well for the company again. In 1935, Pabst introduces packaged beer in cans. So... I don't think they were the first one to put beer in a can, but they are believed to be the first brewer to put beer in six-packs. Guess why? Do you know this? Um, They probably put in a six-pack because 
I'm just going to go with here that that was the average amount of beers that someone would drink, right? No? Okay, can I just, for the record, state that if I drank six beers, you would have to take me to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> like a beer and a half, and I'd be dancing on the bar. <laughs> That's just me. That's great. But that would be, <clears throat> you're wrong. No, okay. that would be okay. incorrect. There's a couple of reasons that have been uh, tossed out for this, and we don't really know. But one of them is the suggestion that six beers was the ideal weight for the average housewife to carry home from the store. What? For her man. I don't know about that. That seems a little too study intensive for that. An what? alternative explanation, I think this one might be it, is the six-pack fits snugly in the bottom of the standard paper grocery bag. It very much does. That's a good point. I think that might actually be yeah. the reason. Because also, if the housewife, she has to carry two, really. Otherwise, she'll get more muscles in one arm. That's right, yeah, off balance, you move off the sidewalk, right, right. This is a concern I always have when I'm carrying <laughs> my groceries. In any case, in 1950s, production and sales soar. But after the younger Pap's retirement, Fred, that is, sales start to slip. Maybe because the stuff tasted like dirty water and there's no genius marketer in place anymore. Also, I assume, in fairness, there is more competition by then. Right. At that point, you know, Anheuser-Busch is kind of a big deal. Miller's growing. Coors growing. Yeah, they've got real beer in the market to fight them. Right. And marketing is now becoming a real word in the vocabulary and a real job for people. So PBR at that time becomes known as the premium beer at a popular price. So... What's the danger of making low price the strategy? What do you think? Probably the danger is the fact that people then look at you as the cheap beer. You know, it's like, the oh, you got that? Ew. I see this as a problem a lot of companies have. It's this idea of a race to the bottom. If you're always trying to undercut on price, how far down can you go? You get to zero, you got no profit left. Yeah, absolutely. You still have to have a margin. Right. And I think there's a lot of companies that make the mistake of of only being price focused. And if you don't have a great product, ultimately, you don't survive unless you're PBR, which continues to exist, even though, uh, hello, dirty water. In 1958 and through 1977, sales grow from 3.9 million barrels in 1958 to 10.5 million by 1970. So, you know, it's not excessive growth. It's not massive growth, but it's 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 solid. They're doing okay. They're moving in the right direction. They're making a profit. And they end that era at a high of 18 million barrels in 1977. And even then, they start becoming part of popular culture. Hey, Raymond, you get enough beer for Ben, too. What kind of beer do you like? Heineken. Heineken? Fuck that shit! Pabst Blue Ribbon! In 1979, PBR even made a commercial with a young Patrick Swayze. When the sun goes down and the evening rolls around, that's the time I find got blue ribbon on my mind. Days of Disco. <laughs> that was done in the style of Saturday Night Fever. And 
it's amazing to think that Patrick Swayze, who really was just getting started then, was kind of playing a poor man's John Travolta in that commercial. It's a very valid point. He's right? brushing his hair, he's got the suit, <laughs> and he's doing the disco moves. It is a fantastic commercial. Google it. In 1985, as the beer is sort of muddling its way through the 70s and 80s, real estate tycoon Paul Kalmanovitz buys Pabst Brewing for $63 million in an aggressive takeover. Now, this is the 80s. This is the time when companies are being bought up to be torn apart, a la the, you know, Wall Street movie. And he plans to tear this brewery down and make money on a new condo development. Obviously, that didn't sit too well with people in Milwaukee. PBR goes through the rest of the 80s and 90s, closing breweries, eliminating jobs, and starting to basically fall apart. By this point, I'm assuming people want taste, they found new trends, and the beer is kind of on the struggle bus to non-relevance town. They're just there. And that essentially brings us up to where we started today's show, the hipster era, While Pabst is flailing and doing nothing, the hipsters find it, and you get newfound glory for the brand. So you can kind of see the irony that PBR was not a company that should have really been embraced by hipsters. At the time they got involved, it was owned by corporate raiders, essentially. And the idea that hipsters were somehow sticking it to the man by buying this stuff is just misguided. Yeah, I really think that that's something, you know, we talked about before that American consumers don't do a whole lot of research. And they just knew that this was a beer that probably their grandpa drank way back in the day. And no one knows it anymore. And it's cheap. So we're going to pick it up. It's ours now. Yeah. So what's the lesson here for consumers? It, it Just because like somebody else does it doesn't mean you do it without doing your homework. I feel like this is a lesson for all of us on a lot of subjects. But the love of PBR is almost like, you know, if I say jump, you don't say how high. You go, why? Why should I jump, right? Like- Ab- absolutely. And I think it's almost the opposite in the sense of if everyone else isn't doing it, do your research and find out there's probably a good reason why they're not doing it. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because socially conscious consumers is is something that, you know, has really bubbled up now. It certainly maybe started back in Portland in those days. But there are a lot of consumers now who are socially conscious. And they say that. And then they do something like drink PBR. It doesn't make sense. There's some logic missing there. I think it's more maybe just the image, though. It's not so much necessarily the product itself. It was the image that PBR put across, right, of this, you know, every man's beer in a way. And that got picked up by them and loved. Yeah. When you break it down and really think about it, it's weird. Although I have said this before, if you were to do all of your homework on all of the companies that are out there, you would never buy another product ever again. Like, I would basically have to just go home, curl up in a ball and not interact with human beings. That's true. You know, most of the corporations do have some spots in their history that are less than desirable, for sure. And I think the world of the internet has made it so easy for us to find out that we almost choose, and I really believe this is what the hipsters did, we just choose to put our heads in the sand. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a little bit, too, that they embraced it and kind of because it wasn't popular, because it was barely selling and not everyone nationwide had it in the local grocery store, they kind of picked it up and, and... and almost without PBR's approval, changed the image of it themselves. They made PBR their beer and they made it feel the way they wanted it. Look, it's a good thing that the company isn't some horrible, racist, you know, evil company behind the scenes because they could have been. For the consumers, they had no idea. All they knew was that it was cheap and it was vintage. And they didn't do any homework to figure out who was behind it, 
who owned it, where they made the beer, nothing. It was just vintage and cheap. And that, I think, is the danger for consumers in embracing something that you don't actually know anything about, right? And then what's the lesson for marketers? Well, hate to say it, but people are kind of (laughs) stupid. So if you tie a blue ribbon around the neck of the beer and call it award-winning, they're going to buy it. Well, isn't that also why for the longest time a lot of companies either started with an A or a 1? You're at the top of the phone book. Must mean you're one of the best ones. I see you at the front. (laughs) So the question is, where is PBR now? We'll talk about it right after this. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. In 2013, Americans drank more than 90 million gallons of PBR. It's nearly 200% more than they drank in 2004. But in order to be selling that much, PBR has to branch out beyond the hipsters. And as we know in American culture, you have to keep growing to succeed. Stockholders, shareholders, they want more. They're not okay with big numbers and big profits unless it's more quarter over quarter. So PBR starts to get bigger and more mainstream. In fact, they showed up on South Park in 2011. They're noisy. Fuck you, bitch. You son of a bitch. They're nasty. You done spilled that on my titties, skunk. They're white trash. And when you give them a little Pabst Blue Ribbon, they can't help getting arrested. Oh, South Park. (laughs) 
2014, uh, Pabst was sold to Blue Ribbon Intermediate Holdings, LLC. It's a partnership between Cashper and San Francisco private equity firm TSG Consumer Partners. The sale was for a reported $700 million. At this point, they have uh, their headquarters in Los Angeles, having left Milwaukee way behind. In 2015, with just 5.5 million gallons of production and 2.2% market share, they're not doing nearly as well as they had been. In 2017, barrels shipped are 2.5 million. That's a change from 2016. They're down 0.6%, market share 1.2%. So the numbers aren't looking good as we move into the present. Well, what happened? The hipster thing was great. Everything was going well. Production was up. Think about it, 90-something million at the top of the hipster era, down to 5.5 million in 2015 in terms of gallons, or barrels, rather, and 2.5 million in 2017. Yeah, 2018, the loss of the market share has the company announcing in January that it has eliminated 70 jobs. And think about it, that's a lot. At the peak in 2016, Pabst had 440 people. So getting rid of 70 cuts out about a quarter of the workforce. I really do suck at math. Okay, here's the big problem now for Pabst. And this has been the truth all along. They don't produce their own beer. So remember back in 2000 when I said that they had outsourced their beer to Miller? Well, now Miller is Miller Coors, and they had made a 20-year contract with that company to produce their beer. So the contract is coming up, and Miller Coors is having struggles of its own, and they don't want to extend the contract past 2020. So off to court they go. Pabst Brewing Company and Miller Coors face off in court. Miller Coors has brewed several of Pabst brands, including PBR, since 1999. But again, that agreement set to expire. And now there's this disagreement in court. Miller Coors is saying, look, we have our own problems. We have to close production facilities, and we just don't have the capacity to brew PBR anymore. Now, PBR says, this is all about them wanting to kill the competition. And so they go to court. And as we know, court always takes a long time. These cases always take a long time. But it went almost the full 2018. And on November 28th, the companies reached a settlement. Now, we don't know the details because the settlement wasn't disclosed. But in a statement following the lawsuit, PAP says it will, quote, continue to offer PBR and the rest of their authentic, great-tasting, and affordable brews to all Americans for many, many years to come, unquote. I'm not sure which good-tasting brews they're talking about. Yeah, I don't know of any brand that uh, appeals to the majority of Americans, but okay. Yeah, so it looks like PBR will live on, though without the hipsters, because they got too big for their own good. The numbers will most likely continue to decline, but you never know. Maybe PBR will be found by some new niche group that really loves beer. We drank beer. You had one beer at the party and had beers with and having some beers with friends or just to meet up and have some beers drinking beer, which I gladly do. That niche could be in Washington, D.C. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh's there a good bit of the time now, and he clearly likes beer. Before we go, Pabst Blue Ribbon has managed to hang in there through prohibition, corporate takeovers, lawsuits, and consumer disdain. And good news for those who love bad beer. In the midst of all the PBR ups and downs, the company, 
Pabst Brewing Company has essentially bought up a bunch of other beer brands like Lone Star, Schlitz, and Schaefer that were once cool and have lost their way. So maybe the Gen Z version of the hipsters will embrace Schaefer, and the Pabst Company will continue its roller coaster ride through history. That's our show for today. See you next time. Bizography is produced by the iHeart Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dana Barrett. My co-host and producer is Nick Bean. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis, and Josh Thane provides audio production. Have questions? Want to give us feedback or have a company you'd like us to cover? Email us at info at bizography.show or contact us on social. I'm at the Dana Barrett on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just search for me on LinkedIn. Thanks for your support. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.